Welcome back to our Vampire Victorian Age campaign. I am your storyteller, Dale, and I am here to guide you through tonight's episode, which is entitled Deviltry at Whitlock Manor. Alexander Pierce, a historical cannibal bushranger of the Nagaraja bloodline. You have resided in Melbourne now for several months. Several months is a short span of time compared to eternity, but you've been here long enough now that you're starting to discover where you fit in amongst the local kindred thanks to the assistance you rendered to Prince Lytton a month or two ago, you've become a known and sometimes even welcomed face among the city's Camarilla. But I have a question for you, Pierce. When you first arrived in Melbourne, you had no friends, save one. A Setite by the name of Sebastian Wilde, the only one of his kind in the city. When no one else would, he was the one who provided you with a haven, intelligence, and a steady source of income. Even though you're now ingratiated to the local court and occasionally show up at Elysium, just for the sake of keeping up appearances, do you still regularly associate with Mr. Wilde? Yes. Um, I'd say his club is a bit of a hangout of mine. Um, I have been known to do the odd job. Um, do some things where I won't say a, uh, a gentle touch is needed because that's not really my style. However, I get results. So if he needs a man for that... <laughs> he knows who to turn to. And just as well as within Sebastian Wilde's brothel, your touchstone works. The downtrodden prostitute, Melissa, who represents your conviction. You must kill to survive. And I presume that whenever you're in and out between jobs, paying a visit to Wild, you stop in, check up on her, make sure she's okay, and keep an eye on the clients that enter and leave her room, silently judging them, and perhaps unknown to her, making sure the ones you don't approve of do not return. So... It's a well-known fact by the other kindred in Melbourne. You associate with Sebastian Wilde, followers of Set. And this means that Prince Lytton isn't likely to call you into his service again anytime soon. Not unless he needs someone who is disposable, or unless there's a job that only Pierce could handle. No, he's deferred back to Conrad Schrecht, the 
pot-headed, well-built Bruja Sheriff, leaving you to your own devices. But you've built up a reputation. The local kindred know Alexander Pierce can get things done. And that means that despite your associations, some of them may still be inclined to ask you for a favour. So, our story begins on this muggy mid-April autumn night. Summer has been and gone. The stifling heat is no longer a regular feature of your nights, but the sticky humidity remains. You're a corpse, however. Your body lacks moisture, and so... While the settlers and the dock workers that you see strolling past your cemetery haven every night continue to walk around dressed lightly, complaining about the humidity drenched in sweat, things are starting to you to feel a little bit more like home, like Van Diemen's land beyond the strait. So, as you awaken tonight, I'd like you to go ahead and make a rouse check for me. You're currently at hunger one from last session. I passed. That's a pass. Hunger one. Your eyes shoot open as the blood begins to circulate through your fetid body. You rise stiffly and climb out of the stone casket that serves as your resting place. Your boots squishing down on the damp, blood-soaked floor of the mausoleum. The stench of death has only grown more intense over the last couple of months. You regularly feed within your haven and... The local mortals seem to have an instinctual awareness that they should never enter. And so, you've seen no real need to dispose of the remains of those you feed on. Body parts, bones, damp blood, all just left around the inside of the mausoleum. Some of it rotted away, covered in maggots, some of it only nights old. It doesn't bother you in the slightest. In fact, I think, Pierce, you would find this smell comforting in a way. So, as you begin to stride through the mausoleum and put your attention to what you're going to do tonight, you see a flicker of movement in the darkness ahead. Something splashing in a pool of blood the base of the staircase that serves as the entrance to your mausoleum. You instinctually reach for the handle of your axe, ready to dispatch whatever it is that has been foolish enough to intrude into your sanctum. And then as you step towards it, you relax. A small local snake tiger snake or a brown snake if you had to take a guess coils in the pool of blood as you approach 
lifts its head, uncoils and slithers towards you. When it comes to your feet, it stops and simply looks up at you, staring with eyes that glimmer a deep red, the same crimson as Vitae. I'll look at you, little buddy. I lean down and I scratch under its shin. I go, on a Sebastian's hey. The snake lifts up its head, allows you to scratch under its neck, almost like a cat. And it seems to like it, for it nudges the tip of its tail against your wrist. And when you pull away, the snake immediately turns, and with a speed that you did not expect, it slithers back across the blood slope, blood-soaked stone towards the staircase, clearly beckoning for you to follow it. You realise what? You realise what the snake wants. It's a retainer or a familiar that belongs to Mr. Wilde. He's clearly centred into your haven while you slept so that it could summon you as soon as you awoke. I follow it. You follow the snake. You watch as it makes its way up the stairs, one by one, hoisting its head onto the edge of a st- of one of the steps, and then using its lower body strength to flip its flip itself over, sort of flip flopping like a slingshot up each stair. You watch it go up about three or four of them, and then you just sigh and you lift it up, prop it over your shoulder, and carry it the rest of the way. You push open the wrought iron gate and step out into the cemetery off Great Collins Street. Look around. The cemetery's quiet tonight. Nobody visiting their departed relatives. No coincidentally lonely petitioners that you can feed upon. You're not feeling hungry anyway. Well, not much hungrier than you usually are. Beast constantly yearns for flesh. What would you like to do? I suppose I'll head down to Sebastian's Weinstein Bishop. Yeah. So you stroll down the cobblestone path that leads down the hill towards the gates of the cemetery, step out onto the mud-choked Collins Street. The street lights are already on. It's probably about 7.30, no later than that. There's still plenty of life on the street, plenty of dock workers and blue-collar types making their way to the pubs after work. A couple of horse-drawn carriages making their way down the street as you walk past, as one of them screams past you, the wheel sends up a splash of mud that splatters the front of your overalls. Shrug. Wipe it off and just keep walking. Sorry, mate! Calls out the driver as the carriage speeds away. Smile at him and I keep going. 
So you make your way to Sebastian Wilde's brothel. You pass by several groups of people. A group of burly men straight from the harbour. They give you a glance, but not a second one. Nobody ever gives you a second glance. This city is your home now, but the locals still don't seem to accept you with open arms. Every time you pass them by on the street, the glances they give are always wary, unnerved, almost as if they can sense the beast within you. You pass by two men in blue overalls, chatting loudly, drunkenly as they stagger along the footpath. Yeah, so I says, right, I says, you owe me two fucking shillings to that, says one of them. The other man laughs. <laughs> he slaps his friend on the back. Two shillings? Two shillings? I thought we were meant to be, be paid three. They look up, barely noticing you, and continue laughing as one of them bumps into you, nearly knocking you off your feet. They turn around, seeing you stumbling there, and one of them opens his mouth to say something, perhaps to apologise, but then his friend grabs him, pulls him away, and they continue on, singing and laughing as they turn their backs to you and continue their jaunt down the street. Turn around to them and go, Don't you think an apology is in order? Two men immediately stop, mid laugh. One of them turns around, his mate grabs him and says, Come on, mate, him. Fucking Tootsie's open this time of night. But his mate stops, shakes his head, and the other guy turns around. They both stand there, silently staring at you. And then the man who appears to be slightly drunker, who's wavering on the spot ever so slightly more, the front of his overalls covered in mud and grime, frowns, and he says, You got a problem, mate? We're just trying to, we're just trying to make our way relax after a good night's work. Well, yes. But you bump into a bloke, so fucking sorry to him, don't you? Or as common courtesy, something not something not important. But a fucking flea ship you guys came. The two men exchange a glance. The drunker one immediately goes bright red in the face. He clenches a fist and slams it into his open palm. And then he steps forwards, his boots sloshing in the mud on the side of the path. And he says, What do you say, mate? You know who we fucking are? Mate, mate, says the other one, the slightly more level-headed one. Why don't you listen to your mate? Well, I'm sorry, and then you can go and marry Wayne, you can go and come to Listen, John, let's just leave this bloke alone, say sorry, get to the pub. And he says, look, mate, I'm sorry. You can tell we've had a, knocked a couple drinks back tonight, and we just didn't see you there. 
He's, he's, he's a very reasonable. His friend steps forwards, interrupting you, and he says, No, you bumped into us. You fucking saw us coming. You could have stepped out the bloody way. Look, we work on... We fucking work in the fucking factories and warehouses all day lifting shit. We're part of the dock, dock workers union. You know fucking who you're meshing with, mate. At this, his friend just takes a step back, sighs, and he gives you a pleading look, the kind of look that says, don't mind my friend, he's drunk and fucking stupid. I level a swift kick to the guy's nuts. <laughs> Go ahead. Make me a strength brawl check. Three successes. Three successes. This man's drunk. He's not at all prepared. I'm giving him two penalty dice. And he rolls a one. He doesn't even realise that you're about to attack him until the tip of your boot's already in his crotch. You hear a loud crack and his mate steps back and shouts, Oh, fuck! As he tumbles to the ground, gripping his groin and wincing in pain, he slides into the mud and begins to wallow at your feet like some sort of animal. I then crouch next to him and I part my jacket and show him an axe hanging from a, a, a leather sheath. It's razor sharp and I go... There are bigger fish than you understand. Now... What do we say about apologising? Go ahead and make for me a charisma intimidation check and you add a bonus die due to your obvious predator flaw. Charisma uh, intimidation. One bonus die. Uh, it's two successes. Two successes. The man winces. Oh, you! Oh, you fucking... You kicked me, you! Oh, thought Adams is gonna hear about this, you fucking... His mate leans over and he's giving you the same pleading look. He helps his friend up to his feet. He's still clutching his groin and then he quickly turns him around, pushes him away, says, get the fuck going. The man you kick starts staggering down the street, grumbling as his friend pushes in the small of his back, making sure he gets as far away from you as possible. And then the reasonable man turns to you and he says, Look, mate, we don't want any trouble, is all. I'm sorry we bumped into you. Our bad should have seen you there. No hard feelings, eh? I just smile at him. And then I turn and continue on my memory turn, continuing on, footsteps sloshing in the mud. Takes several more minutes until you, until the whining of the man in pain fades out of earshot. Oh, he fucking, 
Ramshackle houses along the Yarra River. At the end of the street, you'll find Sebastian Wilde's brothel. And as you make your way towards it, your mind lingers on the fact that those men didn't know who they were messing with. Not only are you fine example of the Nagaraja bloodline, a true monster, but you're also currently the de facto leader of the Bannon Push, a local gang of cattle rustlers who tried their hands at bushranging before you put a stop to that. You've turned their leader, their boss, Smoky into your retainer. You've been giving him a constant supply of your blood over the last couple of months. Just enough to keep him in your employ. Just enough to pacify the lingering feelings of anger and urges for revenge that must surely be welling up inside him after what you did. What have you been putting him to? What what task have you been making sure your retainer busies himself with since the last session? I... have been... utilising his men more or less as labour hire. I need guys for something, I call them. I'm getting a sense of who are the good ones, who are the useless ones, um, who's good at what, familiarising myself with my crew before I actually use them for anything complicated. Um, I'm also, at every opportunity, emasculating um, my retainer um, so, basically, in order, so there is absolutely no, um, question of who calls the shots in our relationship in front of the men. Men are well aware that Alexander Pierce, whoever he may be, is the true force behind their gang. James Smokey Reed, nothing more than a figurehead, a ceremonial leader. And so you've been putting them to work as muscle for hire, essentially. You're a busy man. You have to turn your attention to establishing yourself here, making sure you've got something to show for yourself when your sire finally gets in contact with you. 
you don't have the time to be chasing down every petty criminal who skips out on their bill at Wilde's establishment. So, when that happens, you pay Smokey Reed a call, get him to call up some of his men, give them a name, a description, put them to work. They're not... not the... They're not criminal masterminds by any means. They're mostly... Mostly young men, only... Only a year or two above being children themselves, who are pulled off the street and mm. promised steady pay and lots of drinks, but... There are hard workers amongst them. There are hard workers amongst them, and they don't need to be smart to know how to beat someone up. Or to make someone disappear. So, you step into Sebastian Wilde's establishment just after 8pm. As you step through the entrance hall and into the main lounge, Wilde's ghoul comes rushing forwards from one of the side rooms, a look of utter exasperation on his face. He gestures with his hands at your feet. You look over your shoulder and you've tracked a trail of mud all the way down the entrance hallway. Big brown footprints on the purple carpet. Pierce, what the... Haven't ever heard of... Heard of bloody... Rubber... Rubbing your boots, cleaning the muck off before you step in a step into a bloody establishment, or or what? The shrug. Take my coat off. Chuck it on a coat hook and pull my axe off and use it to scrape the mud off my boot, and then sticking it back on my belt. The ghoul just sighs, exasperated. He brushes his hand through the air. Ah, oh, look. Help, oh, clean it up. Just go on in. Mr. Wilde's expecting you. Try not to track any more, okay? I smile and I put a shilling in his pocket. <laughs> you drop the shilling in his pocket. He nods gracefully as he takes your coat, turns around and hangs it up on the hook on the wall with in the row of all the other coats and hats belonging to the Johns that are paying visits to their favourite girls tonight. And as you stroll across the lounge, some of the working girls watch you, whisper about you as you pass. That's... that's Pierce. If Pierce is here, that means... that means someone has pissed Mr. Wild off it. Oh, shh, don't say that, don't let him hear you. You hear a feminine giggling from above and you look up and leaning over the banister on the balcony above you on the second floor is Melissa. She's just smiling at you. Smiling on my head up. You come and see me after you're done with Mr. Wild, okay? She calls out. No worries, Lord. Hey, I'm not... I'm not paying a pound an hour for nothing, says a voice somewhere in the distance. She rolls her eyes and says, Okay, I'm coming, I'm coming. I shoot her a look. Let go of it. Are you serious? She says, He's paying well, but... Hmm. Come see me after Wild and I'll explain. And then she turns, 
pulls herself away from the banister and disappears into one of the rooms, pulling the door shut behind her. You make your way down the hallway beyond the lounge and knock on the door of Mr. Wilde's office. Come in, comes his voice. Push open the door and step inside. He looks up from his desk, gestures to the chair in front of it. And as you take a seat, he reaches underneath the desk. You hear the sound of jingling glass and he pulls up a bottle of champagne. He slams it on the desk and then grabs a glass. Nothing special, just a just a normal normal wine goblet. Nothing made of crystal. Nothing that seems to befit his usual level of sophistication. Pour some of the champagne into his glass and then takes a sip as he downs the champagne and colour rushes into his cheeks. He smiles. Drink, Pierce. Double ash flavour Pierce to me. I take a seat at his desk here. Now, your lovely little lady friend came and visited me at my boat. I'm assuming that means you've got some work for me. Ah, yes, he says. Nefertiti, return to me. He holds out his hand and the snake uncoils off your shoulder, slithers up his arm and disappears under the hem of his white dinner jacket. He smiles, takes another sip of his drink. Sure there's nothing I can tempt you with, Pierce? You've been doing me a lot of favours and I'd like to help pay you back someday if I can. Now, he shrugs the door. He says, well, I sent Nefertiti to summon you the moment you awoke so that we wouldn't waste any time. Well, uh, Pierce, surely by now you understand that you have a certain reputation, a reputation in this city, amongst this city's kindred, of being one who can solve problems. As he leans forwards, he strokes the golden unk around his neck with his thumb. Yeah, the kind of problem for people who fingers get the colour, perhaps. So tell me, what could possibly you need my services for this evening? Wild smiles and he leans back into his chair, takes a stretch, and then he narrows his eyes. Now, I want you to understand one thing. When you went to the prince, made yourself known to him, you essentially told the Camarilla that if they need muscle, then they can pay you a visit. Of course, everyone knows that you and I are friends. You sleep in my family's ancestral tomb, after all. And so, when anyone requires your services, they come to me. I have negotiated some payment on your behalf. I'm not complaining, mind you. I think, in the end, this all 
helps us advance Set's plan, the more favours and allies I have, the easier it will be for me in the long run to bring Set's wisdom to this shithole, says the last word with contempt. There's a Malkavian, goes by the name Matthew Cousins, also known as Bluey. I take it you know him? He smiles as he says this, and your mind flashes back to the events of a couple of months ago. Matthew Bluey Cousins. He claims to be in charge of the railroads. He's in charge of bringing the gold in from the gold fields, bringing it down to Melbourne. Under his watch, the gold trains make their way from G-Town into Melbourne and then into the Prince's coffers. You vaguely remember that he mentioned he was dealing with some sort of issue. It seems he's decided that you're the best person for the job. Or at least he thinks you'll do him a favour. Alright, so, what's he have to do with peace? Well, he's come to me, says Wild. Now, ordinarily, Cam fucker like him wouldn't have two pence to throw my way. But he knows you and I are associated and he wants you to do him a favour. No favours, I told him. I made sure he gave up something, something quite valuable in return for your services. I shall be taking possession of that later tonight. All you need to do now is go and meet up with him. He's expecting you between 8.30 and 9 at a bookstore. Goes by the name of Forgers. Down the end of Colton Street and then onto Queen Street. Something about the railroads, he says, shrugging, means nothing to me. I'm not interested in that gold anymore. Not now that you've made sure our uh, friend in the Giovanni has been able to continue his business undetected and unmolested. Well, maybe a little molested. I think they detect a couple he smiles mm, and you did threaten him into cutting down my cut by 50% but the fact that he's able to continue operating at all and the prince is no longer breathing down his neck is a small victory so go and meet with this cousin see what he wants and if you manage to solve his problem, let us say I owe you a boon. Believe me, the boon I will owe you is worth far less than what I've managed to talk out of this. Alright. Uh, what, what, what have you managed to talk out of it? Ah, uh, 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 
he says, wagging his finger. It is something that is important to Seth's plan. And you getting it is entirely dependent on me doing the fucking job. So, out with it. Go ahead and make for me a manipulation, etiquette, or persuasion check. That is two, three, four successes. Four successes. At this, Sebastian Wilde laughs jovially. <laughs> Sharp as that axe you carry, aren't you, Pierce? He flashes his teeth. They're bright white, and his skin blushes with life. And he suddenly seems to radiate. Perhaps it's the angle of the light cast from his desk lamp, but you've never quite noticed just how handsome this man is. In another life, he could have easily been a Toreador. He rolls five successes on his charisma subterfuge check. You take one point of willpower damage, superficial willpower damage, simply clasps his hands together and says don't worry your head Pierce it's nothing you need be concerned about to be honest purely something that will help me build a foundation for my clan in this city in the future um how Can I detect presence? Um, can detect? Can I detect presence? You sure can. Um, if you would like to try to detect presence, go ahead and make a composure plus intelligence check. Uh, two successes. Two successes. He blusters like this a lot, and you suspect is using something like what the Toreador do, but you're terrible at spotting it. You're just running on the assumption that perhaps he's just unusually jovial tonight. Hmm. I smile, and I turn away from him. I walk out, and as I'm walking out, I just flip the finger at him, and then... Uh, go check on Melissa. Manners, says Wild, as you shut the door behind you. You hear him laughing on the other side. Make your way back out into the lounge, and... As you step... As you step out into the main area of the brothel, you see... The girls gathered around the staircase leading up to the second floor, whispering among themselves. Nearby on a plush leather couch, two men sit there in their underwear looking bewildered and impatient. What the fuck's going on, says one of them. Bleeding hell, I'm not paying 
a pound to sit here and do nothing. Shh, says one of the girls. And you hear from directly above, from behind Melissa's room, a voice shouting, I said suck. When I say suck, I mean it. I'm not paying for you to chat me ear off, you banshee. Behind the bar, the ghoul looks at you. He gives you a knowing glance and shrugs, saying, what are you going to do? I pick up a bottle of whiskey and I chuck my coin before it. He nods, slides it over the bar to you. I walk upstairs and... Uh, go to Melissa's room. You make your way up the stairs, the girls part. One of them gives you a look and she says, We didn't have anything to do with this, Mr. Pierce. Honest, honest, he just flew off the handle. Says another one, grabbing the girl, pulling her back from you. I slowly advance to the room. Stand in front of the door. It's closed, and you can see the man's you can see the man's shoes and hat lying in a bundle in front of the door on the carpet. On the other side you can hear Melissa saying, I know I I know but Please, sir, in this establishment, we don't, we don't do that. And I don't care, says the man. I heard this was the best bloody place in town. Now, I've come down here from G-Town for a good fuck, and you won't even give me what the bloody hell I want. I walk up behind him. You open the door? Yeah. Grab the doorknob, slowly pull the door open, and I, are you going to try to surprise him or are you just stepping in not caring if I'm just walking into him just walking into the room yep grab the door fling it open and it slams against the the wall with a bang leaving a doorknob sized scratch in the purple wallpaper you see Melissa sitting leaning against the headrest of her bed naked with her arms wrapped around herself in front of her is the man, he's on his knees, he's completely nude, and as he whirls around, you see that he's rock hard. He's also red in the face, and he gets redder as he sees you. What the... the... Your mother ever fucking teach you to knock? I take a step towards two, and then I just, like, hit him with the end of the bottle, like, right in the fucking nose. Go ahead, make a strength melee check for me. That is one, two, three, four successes. Four successes. So you haven't surprised him. He sees you raise the bottle and the snarl on his face twists to a look of shock and he attempts to get out of the way. 
that's a total failure. Zero successes out of his dice pool of four. He all he manages to do is lurch forwards and stumble off the side of the bed. He hits the floorboard with a thump and an ah! And then as he starts to climb to his feet, you just lean down and thump! Smash the bottle on his uh, head. Not smashing, dude. Just, no, just, lean, just like lengthways, right, like straight, like along the bottle, straight into his nose. The bottle's yep, straight, bottle straight into his nose. You shove the neck of the bottle straight up. You hear it crack, and then he clasps his hand to his nose, falling back down immediately onto the floor. Blood spurting out from the middle of his face. Oh shit! Then. I rip out the um, the cork out of the bottle with my teeth, spit it out. Makes a thunk as it lands on the floorboards next to him. And then I grab him by his broken nose and just like hold it and twist it. He screams, ah! Holding now, up his right hand, pressing it into the underside of your chest, trying desperately to pull you, push you away, but he is not strong enough. Yeah. You're a first-time offender, but Melissa's room's got special rules. Those special rules are, mind your fucking manners. And at this point, I just, like, start, like, dousing his mouth in alcohol, like, just, like, forcing it down his yeah. throat. The grab, entire bottle. With one hand, you grab his chin, wrench his mouth open, and as he whimpers, ooh, 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 you shove the bottle in his mouth. Just basically waterboarding him with yeah, the... Yeah, with the, with the alcohol. You drain at least half the bottle of whiskey before you hear him struggling to breathe and then you finally pull it up he gasps man on the bed Melissa just I wouldn't say she's smiling but she's looking on certainly intrigued now what are the real special rules of Melissa's room? He crawls forward, still clutching a hand to his nose, blood still dripping, leaving a trail on the floorboards. Mind your... mind your manners! Good. He says, and he staggers to his feet as he reaches out, grabbing his clothes and staggering out of the room. I'm like, uh, uh, uh. Hold out a hand, stopping him just before he gets to the door. It's good manners to leave the lady. Very generous tip for a time. <laughs> he nods and reaches into the pockets of his jacket that's folded over his arm and pulls out a bundle of coins and banknotes and begins counting them. Just put it on your knees. Make a strength intimidate for me. Bonus dice because of your obvious predator flaw. I'm gonna willpower that. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, two successes. Two successes. Ah, 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 says the man. Not able to form words, he looks left and right, peers over your shoulder at the the brothel's lounge, and then 
just throws all of the money in his hand at the bed. He nods, uh, groaning in pain, still clutching his hand to his mouth, ducks under your arm, and staggers out of the room. I then leave the half bottle at her bedside and goes, Press that yours, love. Thank you, she says. I should know better by now than to turn them away or call for assistance yeah. when they give off red That'll flags, work. but... That'll work. Anyway, take the rest of the night off. Should be plenty of, plenty of coin on the ground there. See ya. She no nods leave. as you turn and step towards the door as you stand in the door frame. She leads forwards. Pierce? Uh. She frowns. I... Before you go, I... Do you remember... Remember Reuben... Reuben Bannon? The, the, the man who... It's the man she killed. Yeah, I remember him. I... I've been seeing him in my dreams, and it's... He keeps saying he's waiting for me. And I... I mean, thinking, Pierce, I, I know... I know what I did, what I had to do. It was about survival, but I... I took a man's life, and I... think of the things that you do. You do, Pierce, and... Every time you're here, you just seem so... Confident. You never seem bothered by it at all, and... The other girls, they, they say things about you. They say... They say you must be some kind of monster. You, you make people disappear, but... Pierce, you come in here and you're nice to me, you look after me, and if I'm honest with you, I don't know why. I don't know how how you can care about someone like me when you do the things you do, and never show a hint of remorse, and she trails off. I look at her from my um, shoulder, and when you figure it out, let me know when I leave. Hear her sigh as you shut the door behind behind you. Regain one point of willpower, and then make your way back down the stairs. The girls looking stunned silently at you as you pass, and you grab your coat from the rack from the hook on the wall, slide it back on and make your way back down the hallway. You notice that the ghoul has managed to clean up the mud you've tracked by now, and as you reach the entrance hall and grab the doorknob, in the background you hear him call, NOT FUCKING AGAIN! Look over your shoulder. It's not footprints this time. There's a couple of splotches of mud about the size of the palm of your hand tracking down the purple carpet. So, as you step out into the humid night air, you have a meeting with Matthew Bluey Cousins at Forge's Bookstore on Queen Street. 
It's about 20 minutes here if you walk, or you can hail a taxi, or you can do something entirely else. Yep. Entirely up to you. You're not in a rush. He said any time between 8.30 and 9, and you figure since you're apparently now a mercenary who Sebastian Wilde hiles out, then Mr. Cousins won't mind if you're more than a few minutes late. Make your way once again down Grand Collins Street. There's still a couple of people milling about, making their way home from the pubs after an evening of drinking or knocking off from the graveyard shift and trying desperately to get to the drinking houses before they shut down. There aren't any women or children, the boutiques, stockbrokers, banks and post offices on the main street are all shuttered for the night. A lone carriage, a cabbie, walks past as you reach the corner of Queen Street, the horse's hoofs, horse's hooves making a squelching sound in the mud. (laughs) The wheels of the carriage leaving a multiple centimetre deep rift in the well-trodden road behind it. And it's just shy of nine o'clock about 8.50 and you reach Forge's bookstore. This building is obviously quite new, unlike the other wooden shop fronts that take up most of the business establishments in Melbourne. This building is built out of brick, stone and concrete. It's designed to resemble a sort of ancient Greek or Roman palace of sorts. Faux marble columns out the front. A sign simply reading forges visible hanging above a single glass door. Above you, towering above, is a brick tower with single clock face, a clock tower. As you step towards it, the hour hand turns over to nine o'clock and the bell at the top of the tower begins to ring. I'll approach the door. You step towards the door. The inside of the shop, from what you can see, is dimly lit. You catch a flickering orange light from within, perhaps a lantern or a lamp of some kind. Sign on the door, surprisingly for this time of night, reads, open, come in. Open the door and come in. Push the door open and hear a bell ring somewhere in the recesses of the shop. The shop is, despite its grand exterior, quite cramped. It's about the size of Melissa's bedroom at the brothel and most of the floor space is taken up by thick wooden bookshelves groaning under the weight of hundreds, possibly thousands of tomes. I walk up to the counter. Is there a bell to ring? 
there is, walk up to the counter, there's no one there, but there's a single bell. There's also a stack of books just piled up on the corner of the counter. Some, some sort of special order, you presume. They appear to be books on botany. Oh. I ring the bell. You hear a voice from somewhere beyond the counter. Ah! Black's turn to make a move! I... Just sit there and wait. for a few more minutes. Press the bell again. Ding! Ding, ding, ding! Ding! Folding your arms and whistling as you look around. Are you interested in any of the books? No, I'm, I'd be largely illiterate. Yeah, Pierce doesn't care about these books. and None of them have titles on the spines anyway. This is sort of before the days when books yeah. were sold to regular people. They're usually mainly reference texts for academics and yeah. other scholars. Well, as, as a criminal... Um... Before my, I wouldn't have really had a chance to learn how to read. Yeah, exactly. You've been a criminal since a young age. There's a doorway behind the counter that leads into a back room. And after you wait another five, ten minutes, you see the silhouette of a short, portly man highlighted against the flickering light of a lantern in the room beyond. Hey, you here to buy, buy books, or, uh, you here to meet someone, says the man, his face. I'm here about a job. My time is valuable, so. A job. A job, he says. In the background, a voice says, Ah! The knight! Bring him to me. The next gambit requires him. The portly man nods. He steps forwards. And in the dim light, you can just make out his face. His face is quite wrinkled, his hair balding, and he's got a silver beard running about halfway down his neck. He narrows his eyes as he sees you. Mm, let me guess. One of Gluey's friends, right? Based on the colour of your skin? No offence. I ain't trying to discriminate or anything like that, but... You look a bit pale, is all. That's fine. And I go, well, that's what we to see. So. Come on, come on. He gestures for you to follow him, and he leads you behind the counter into the back room. It's more of an office than a back room. There's a desk, a green couch against one wall, a filing cabinet against, in, against another, and there in the very middle of the office laid out on a wooden coffee table is an ornate chess set. Seated in front of the chess set, taking his hands off the bishop and turning to face you as you're led in is Matthew Bluey Cousins. He smiles and brushes a lock of brown hair out of his face. I swallowed it and I go, Pierce. 
hairdresser might. As he holds out his hand and shakes yours, the short, portly man slides back into his seat on the other side of the chess set. He stares at the pieces, thinking, and then grabs a rook, slides it to the other side of the table. Bluey watches it move, but he frowns. Bad play there, Mr. Sandor. Bad play. But I have another game that requires my attention. Pierce. Mr. Pierce, Mr. Sandor. Mr. Sandor is the owner of this bookstore. He doesn't have a lot of time on his hands. Doesn't, not many who read in this city. So he mostly spends his time playing chess with me. His son headed off to America a couple of years ago, and so he and I are really all each other have. I shrug my shoulders. Well. He says, well, are you familiar with the game of chess, Mr. Pierce? No, wait, I've asked this, haven't I? He smiles. No, indeed, you most certainly are not. Do you remember I told you that I control the railroad? At least I control the railroad from leading from here to G-Town? I've been told, yes. Well, uh, I must confess, when I met you last time, I exaggerated a little, tried to play up my self-worth. He says, as a neonate is wont to do. See. I control the railroads here in Melbourne. I control the train station on Spencer Street. I control the locomotives that come in and out of there. G-Town, on the other hand, that's covered by something else. So as you see, in between the two in between the two stations, Melbourne and G-Town, there's a little I suppose we will call it a township of sorts. It's called Churnside. Nothing much there save for some houses, a post office, and a train platform. Sort of a midway point between here and G-Town, you see. But there is someone who controls the train station there. And anything that I receive from G-Town that comes down here to Melbourne, or anything I send up that way has to go through him first. Do you understand? It's fairly straightforward thus far. He says, so, he gestures towards the green couch. Please, uh, by all means, take a seat. And then he leans forwards, grabs a chess piece, and slides it forwards. Oh, check, Mr. Sandor, he says. sit here just patiently waiting so you make yourself comfortable looks over at you and he says so uh, churn side well shall I give you the short story or the long story how much do you need to resolve the problem depends on what the problem is hmm. well see I saw what you were able to do for the prince and well, I would like for the problem to be resolved in a similar matter as to that. So you want me to take this for 
this, he smiles and he says, Dear, dear, perhaps I should start at the beginning then. Okay, so, Churnside. There's a Gangrel and Scylla. Ghoul kindred A Gangrel and Scylla goes by the name of Alfred Whitlock. He owns a manor there in Churnside. It's the only building that actually classifies as a building. The only place that isn't just a shack built out of stones and twigs from the bush. He's sort of... Well, he rules out of Whitlock Manor, sort of presents himself as the lord of the town. I'm sure the mortals of Churnside aren't exactly aware of who they serve, but this gangrel pulls the strings, you understand. He's not one to be trifled with. I did my homework on him, and the reason I elected to bring him on as a business partner is because in his earlier years, he was a prominent fixture in the court in London. They say he had the eye of Mithras and was tutored by Lord Camden himself. He pauses to see if you register any recognition on your face. None whatsoever. These uh, are all names that I'm going to forget yeah. in like five minutes. He frowns and he says... I don't suppose... Well, let me put it this way. He's a very influential and... Very influential, very crafty kindred. For a gangrel, anyway. He's been in charge of the... He's been in charge of Churnside and, by extension, the train station at Churnside for... 30 or even more decades by now. And, well, to make a long story short, these last few months he's stopped responding to my letters. I've sent retainers up to Churnside, and when they've returned, they've said they've found no sign of him. The staff at Whitlock Manor have said that Mr. Whitlock is temporarily indisposed of. That's when they return at all. One of my retainers, a young boy who Mr. Sandor here was employing to catalogue the books in the bookstore, simply did not come back. So what's the job? Well, there's more, he says. There's another gangrel, a friend of mine, Mr. Whitlock's child, in fact. Gangrel neonate by the name of Eliza Worthington. She's the one who originally, you know, got the wheels into motion to get me and him to make an arrangement. Well, I told her that her sire seems to have dropped off the face of the earth. She decided to go up to Churnside to look into it herself, and she has not returned. So, Pierce... As someone who is unaffiliated with the Camarilla in this town, and as someone who will actually get the job done, I want you to go to Churnside, ask around, see if you can find out why 
Mr. Whitlock has stopped responding to my missives and if possible convince him to renegotiate our arrangement. And you don't give a shit about the two disappearances? Well, obviously, if my retainer is still alive, I would like them returned and... Well, as for Lady Worthington, I... He frowns. I will admit I have no specific love for her. She was merely the conduit through which he and I made contact... My main concern is Mr. Whit- is Mr. Whitlock himself. No shrug. Yeah. Alright. Couple conditions. Now, name your conditions, though. Please, Pierce, be advised that I did already make arrangements with Mr. Yes. Wilde and- Condition one. What are the details of those arrangements? Well, my, Mr. Wilde swore me to secrecy he clasps his hands together. It's like knowing your opponent's next move in chess. It would be unfair for me to spoil it. I... I've yet to say yes to the job. Well... I've already made arrangements to... I've yet... Furnish payment to... Mr. Wilde. I was under the impression that... I don't work wild. I work for me. So. He sighs. He turns towards Sandor sitting opposite. He says, Mr. Sandor, why don't you uh, go and make sure those botany reference manuals are in uh, the correct order and ensure they're ready for when Mrs. Partridge arrives to collect them tomorrow. The fact the short, poorly man nods. He stands up. Pierce, he says. He nods at you as he walks past and shuts the door behind him. Now that you're alone in the room, the Malkavian leans forwards. He smiles, bearing his fangs, and he lowers his voice and he says, What will it take, Flechita? First things first. I want to know what became Why? Go ahead and make uh, a manipulation persuasion check. Uh, that is three successes. Three successes? He rolls two. I promised I wouldn't tell, he says, but... Well... You and he are friends, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, but if friends need to be told to fuck themselves occasionally, remind him that I'm not his lackey. He smiles and he says, mm, It was a bronze figurine, an object de art from my collection. A thousand year old Egyptian statue. Statuette. Worth a lot of money, but not priceless. Only once to some ritual thing, I'm assuming. Well, I can't claim to know the will of Set, can I? 
but I can claim to pierce the veil and see into the future. And I understand that this particular statuette is of great importance to his lineage in particular. The statue depicts a, shall we say, distant ancestor of Mr. Wilde's. A smile and I go, well, that's really none of my concern or business. Alright. Second condition. Hmm. Pound of flesh. Don't care where you get it from as long as you. Human flesh? It's not something I usually deal with. I deal with trains and books, but pound of flesh. I suppose I can find a way, he says. Anything else? No, that is. Do you have a preference for your type of flesh? See, I understand you're not a ventru, but uh, well, fresh. Uh, polite company don't flesh. He says fresh, fresh flesh. Very well. Man, woman, child. Fresh, fresh flesh. Very well, he says. There is a woman coming tomorrow to discuss. A rare collection I've yet to have imported from London. She's from out of town. Very well. She would have only have paid £30 for the collection of books. I shall chalk it down to a pound of flesh being worth £30 of currency. Call it a loss on my books. Write it off when it comes time to pay taxes. Anything else? Okay, where it comes from. Uh, with that, I turn and leave the store and head to the train station. Yep. So you don't, you, you, you just say, you just say nothing else. Yeah. You turn, push open the door, and walk past Mr. Sandor, and he jumps, oh, 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 Pierce, uh, have a good night, he says, as he's got the botany books all laid out on the counter, and he's checking the pages, the title pages to arrange them in the correct order and date them and price them accordingly. Push open the glass door, hearing the bell ring again. Tingling! Step out into the night. And I'd like you to add a stain to your humanity track, please. This woman, this innocent woman, is going to be killed to feed you and not at your own hands, so your conviction does not apply. Mm. You have not killed her yourself. Uh... Pencil. Pencil. Did that go? I had a pencil. You had a pencil. I had a pencil. Here it is. So, you make your way to the train station. It's not far from Queen Street to Spencer Street. It's about 10.30 by the time you finally arrive. The, the night is still relatively young. In decades to come, Spencer Street Station will be one of the 
famous landmarks of Melbourne. It will serve locomotives from all around the state. But right now it's little more than a grey stone building with a train platform on one side and one on the other. There's a clock atop a black iron pole sticking out of the footpath just outside the station house and a map of Melbourne and its surrounds with a timetable attached hanging on the wall with a sheet of glass covering it hung up on the stone wall outside. You check the schedule. The next train will be arriving within the next 10 minutes, but traveling to Churnside is not exactly a quick and easy affair. According to the map behind the glass barrier, Churnside Station is a journey of 20 miles from here. This will take you an hour and a half to two hours, meaning you'll arrive with only a few hours to spare until dawn. So it's up to you if you'd like to head back to your haven, wait till the next night and come back bright and early, so to speak, or take your chances finding a place to rest in Churnside. He didn't mention it was time sensitive at all. Did he? he did not. Just that he wanted it done. Oh. Rest in my. Haven for the evening. Yep. Alright, please go ahead and roll a rouse check for me to see if you get hungrier as you awaken the next night. Nah, I do not. You do not sell hunger one, doing well. You have nothing more to do that night. So you return to your haven and prepare yourself, retiring to your casket early, closing your eyes and willing the day sleep upon you. Your blood rouses you as soon as the sun goes down the next night. Make your way through the once again empty cemetery. And when you reach the gates, you hail a passing carriage. Head down, give you a ride, says the, says the blue collar man holding the reins. Oh, just to the station. Just to the train station, you say, Oh, you're heading down that way myself. Hop aboard, he says. Climb up beside him, and he spurs the horses on. And it's just shy of 7.30 when the carriage stops in front of 
Spencer Street Station. Unlike last night when there was no one here, this time of night there's throngs of people gathered together on both platforms waiting for the last trains out of town. Men and women dressed for a journey carrying heavy bags and luggage. The station house is open so you walk up, knock on the window and the little glass barrier slides open. The station master looks at you. Oh, one for Churnside, he says, as you tell him your destination. Oh, two pounds, and that'll cover your way back as well. Oh, I hand over the money. Hand over the money. He cuts, he pulls out the reel of tickets, rips one off the end and hands it to you, and then he slides the glass door shut again. Stroll towards platform two and lean against the stone wall of the station house as you wait for your train to come. There's two children playing on the platform. They're getting restless at this time of night. Any other night, their mother would be tucking them into bed about now. But they're restless waiting for the train to come. And as they play and as their mother ushers them away from the edge of the platform. A young girl, perhaps no older than six or seven, frolics up towards you. As she sees you looking down at her, she goes white in the face, looks up at you and says, Are you the boogeyman? I smile and I just look to the station, to look to the, where the train's coming. Come, come here, honey, says the girl's mother. Creeping forwards, grabbing the now deathly silent girl by the arm and leading her away. And then you hear the horn of the train calling in the distance. You see the plume of smoke, even blacker than the darkening sky above, as the locomotive pulls into the station. As it slows down, its brakes let out a great hiss. <laughs> The conductor's exit. All aboard! Shouts one of the conductors as he slides open the carriage doors. Patting your back to make sure your axe is still where it should be. You step onto the carriage. The conductor blows his whistle. The doors shut. The train hisses again. Stumbling, you nearly fall over as the train begins to make its way out of the station. You're going to be on this train for the next hour and a half to two hours. Is there anything you'd like to do in particular while you wait? Um, I'll take a newspaper and I'll... Actually, no, I can't really read, can I? Yeah, you can't really read. Maybe you can read a headline or two, but... Yeah. Um... <laughs> just whistle quietly to myself. Stumble down the middle of the carriage as it rocks and jerks on the rails, trying very hard not to lose your footing again, and slide into an empty seat as an old woman seated across from you. She waits about 30 seconds after you take your seat, and then she gets up and shuffles away, leaving you alone. 
casually whistle as you peer out the window. The night outside is dark, the lights of the city soon fade away and the sheer blackness of the wilderness takes over. The sky above is clear of clouds tonight, stars are sparkling. The sides of the rail are flanked by copses of twisted trees in the darkness. In the darkness they look more like claws, black claws sticking out of the earth, grabbing towards the train. Twenty miles of unspoiled wilderness not yet disturbed by the march of colonisation and industrialization. Next stop, Churnside! Next stop, Churnside! Calls one of the conductors. You feel the rumbling beneath you begin to settle as the train starts to slow and then you hear the horn and once again the loud hiss as the train rockets to a stop. Nobody gets up. Apparently, you're the only one who gets off at this stop. I get up, really. You get up, make your way back down the middle of the carriage. Nobody giving you anything more than a quick sidelong glance before turning white in the face and looking away. As you step towards the open carriage door, the conductor holds out his hand. Make sure you have all your big... He steps away as he sees the grim look on your face. Your boots crunch down on the cobblestone and concrete platform outside. And the conductor simply nods, says, uh, Have a good night, sir, and then steps back into the carriage. The doors slide shut behind him. And the train lets out another plume of smoke, another great hiss as it begins to leave and a few minutes later you're standing alone on the platform at Churnside. It's a platform in every sense of the word. It's a block of elevated stone with a small wooden shack at one end where the station master would normally be. It's just shy of 10.30pm. The shack is closed and a sign reads, prepaid tickets only. see a set of stone stairs at the end of the platform that leads down into a muddy dirt street and ahead of you just over the crest of a hill you can see the pointed roofs of buildings the main street of this tiny town I Uh, is the obvious where the banner is? It is not. You can't see it from here, but you were told it stands out, so you figure... I'll head to Main Street. Yeah. So make your way off the platform, trudge down the muddy wooden road towards the Main Street. There are a couple of pinpricks of light here and there, some light in the windows of some of the buildings, but notably, notice the Main Street is not lit by streetlights here save for those pinpricks of light and the stars above 
this town would be cast in pure blackness. So, as you make your way down the main street, you look around, taking stock of this place, little more than a waypoint between Melbourne and G-Town. Overall, this rural township offers little excitement. Most of the buildings on the main street are simple, simple one-bedroom houses made out of grey stones and, and crudely cut wood. There's a post office about halfway down the main street, but at this time of night it's shut, along with a general store attached to it. The only building that appears to have any signs of life is a long brick, a long red brick building with a relatively modern tiled roof. Bright lights emanate through the various windows that line the front wall facing the street. And there's a sign hanging above a door blowing in the wind and through the dim light you can just make out the words Armstrong's Tavern. Oh, no, I I see one. So I head down to the tavern. You step towards the tavern, stand in front of the wooden door, and from the other side you can hear muffled laughter, singing, clanking of glasses. There's definitely people in tonight. These are probably the only people awake in this tiny village. I open the door to the tavern and I, I go through and go up to the bar. As you open the door into the tavern, you catch just a snippet of the cacophony within. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I see. The clatter of, there's one clatter of glasses and then complete silence as about ten men all turn and look at the stranger entering their midst. Nine patrons all seated around wooden tables, hands clutching half-full glass pitchers, various alcoholic drinks, and at the very back of the room, a long wooden bar. There's a mustachioed man wearing a blue apron. He's folded his arms and leans forwards, raising an eyebrow as he takes in the sight of you. The entire tavern is lit with a series of burning lanterns hanging from the roof. The bar itself's relatively small. There's a hallway beyond the bar leading deeper into the building and based on the sign next to it that says room one pound per night, you assume this is most likely more than a tavern. It's a hotel. Sure. Um, I just walk up to the bar, I sit down and go, achievements. Go ahead and make a wits awareness check for me, please. Uh, 
Uh, that is two successes. Two successes. So you make your way to the bar, slide down on one of the stools. You hear the patrons whisper, whisper as you pass them by, who's he? Oh, he's got to be from out of town. He doesn't look like anyone from around here. Oh, is he a woodcutter or something? That's an axe under his coat. Oh, he's a cup of wood or... Just gossiping, trying to figure out who you are. That doesn't concern you. What concerns you is two men. Two men who you glimpse, as you glimpse them, turn away from you. You notice that, unlike the other patrons, they're not wearing dirtied overalls and sweat-stained shirts. These two men are wearing finely tailored slacks and dress shirts. And as you sit down, one of them leans forwards over the table and whispers to his friend, uh, he's definitely one of them. Reckon the Quince sent him? Oh, no, we've got to let... We've got to let Roth know otherwise. Shh, shh, says the other one. Catching you staring at them, they look away. The bartender slams a pint down on the bar in front of you. One pint, he says. Three shillings. I look into the three shillings for a beer. I'm like... It, it is overpriced. The niggas out of town's tax. He winks. You got it. Gotta make sure you're not causing any trouble. So, where are you from anyway? He says. Melbourne. Melbourne, he says. Hmm. So what business you got around here? People don't stop here unless they've got family. Usually keep on heading up to G-Town or even further if they fancy a try at the gold fields. No, I... This... Matlock? Whitlock. Whitlock. Got some business with Whitlock. Whitlock, he says. Yeah, Whitlock Manor. His father was... His father was mayor of our little town, but, uh... We don't see much of him these days. Pretty much sticks to himself, I suppose. Not much... For a fancy pants like him in this little town. Sits in his manor, lets us do a, do what we do on the day-to-day, -day, and uh, so long as the local council defers to him when anything needs to be built or anything needs to be brought in from out of town, he pretty much lets us be. So that begs the question, if you don't mind me asking, business have you got with someone like him? No offence, but you don't look like the type who would normally, you know, be a dinner guest at a place like Churnside Manor. Big time money as well. And I hope you'll understand me not going to do much further detail. 
go ahead and make for me a charisma subterfuge check. One penalty die due to your obvious predator flaw. Please. Charisma subterfuge. Subterfuge. So three though. Uh, that is one success. One success. Raises an eyebrow. You're not quite sure whether he trusts you or not. He grabs a dirty picture from the table behind him. Starts wiping it down with a cloth. And then he says, Well, look, it's just, uh, I can't really imagine Mr. Whitlock would have business with anyone at this time of night, not to mention that uh, whenever he has business with any of us in town, it goes through his staff, uh, like those fellas over there. He points to the two men who are whispering about you wearing slacks and dinner shirts. Occasionally we'd see him, see his face every now and then, maybe see him in a carriage down Main Street or something like that, but last couple of months it's just been his staff. Oh, it's wrong. Okay. Don't you worry about it. Anyway, thanks for the I smile and I walk over the table with the two boys. Walk over to the table and just pull out the seat drop into it. They look up at you as you sit down. One of them looks straight at you and he says, so what brings a Melbourne vampire to our humble little township? Kindred matters. Kindred matters, says one of the men. He grabs the picture in front of him brings it to his lips, takes a big swig and then slams it down on the table. Kindred matters, such as... A smile. And... Okay. Type of question that... tends to go above the head of people of your nature. Do you mean that in a threatening way? Uh, there's a bit of threat to my voice. Yeah, okay, so you go ahead, make a manipulation intimidation with your veiled threats specialty. Manipulation... Intimidation... Uh, that is four successes. Let the words linger for a moment. One of the men, one of the men looks at you. There's a flicker of something on his face, perhaps a glimmer of fear. He exchanges a furtive glance with his friend and he says, Fuck, fuck. They've sent another one. They've sent another. Says his friend. He looks towards you and he says, If you have kindred matters, we'll suit you fine. We are the retainers. 
of Master Whitlock and we handle all of his business. He is a busy man, a kindred of great stature, does not have time for out-of-towners. I lean back to your side and say, Alright. Here's how this is gonna go down. You and you are gonna take me to the manor, open the front door, take my jacket, take my boots, as good hosts will. And then call down your ass. Because he has matters to discuss with someone that has his patience. Now, do you know why you're going to do it like that? They lean in. Because the other option is I go there myself. And I bang on the door. And then I throw the heads of his two favourite retainers at his feet. And begin negotiations from there. Make a manipulation intimidation check again with another specialty dice. Well, actually, that's not really a veiled threat, so no specialty dice. dice. <laughs> <laughs> it's rather... That's a rather... Direct threat. Direct threat. <laughs> Uh, and consequently I only have three successes. Three successes. So I'm going to roll a composure and resolve check for them. That's only two successes. You count yourself lucky as you lean in, lower your voice and deliver the last few words. In the background, the other patrons seem to have... seem to have lost interest in the novelty of an out-of-towner. The... Tavern is once again filled with clinking glasses, laughing, cheering, scraping of chairs. And as you deliver your threat, the two retainers stare back at you. The nervous looking one on the left raises his hands and says, I don't know what to tell you. I, I'm sorry, the master is temporarily in. The other one raises a hand looks at his companion and he says maybe maybe he can help us deal with wrath if we okay we'll take you to the manor you have to understand uh, our master is not prepared for visitors but we will take you retainers slurp up the last of their beer <laughs> and they stand up their chairs scraping on the floorboards they hold out their hands John Marcus I'll take each of their hands in turn and go peace yes. shake their hands lingering on your name each time 
and as they begin to lead you out of the tavern, the bartender raises a hand. Hey, John Marcus, knocking off already? Ah, yes, says John. Uh, This fellow here has business up at the manor with Mr. Whitlock. The bartender nods up. Okay then, uh, pass on my good wishes to Mr. Whitlock. Thank you. I'll see you again tomorrow night. He waves as one of the retainers pulls open the door and gestures for you to step outside. Nice step outside. As soon as you step out onto the main street and are out of the tavern, the two retainers are swallowed up in shadow. They turn towards you, their eyes glimmering in the darkness. And then one of them says, Okay, be straight with us. What's your business with the boss? Negotiating matters of access. Above your paper, as I said. Anyway, let's continue. The train station, says the retainer. The train station. We know he's got to deal with another, like, you out of town, but well, the other one shoots in. Roth told us that if we just set the thing, kept sending the trains by, no one would come up and check. Well, let's go. Her eyes glimmer once again, and They raise a hand, gesturing for you to follow them. Follow them a short distance down the main street. At the very end of the main street, there's a single black carriage driven by one horse tied to a pole. The retainers gesture towards the carriage. Cool. I get in the carriage. Climb up into the carriage, into the back, take a seat. One of the retainers, Marcus, climbs in with you while the other one, John, slides into the driver's seat, grabs the reins and shouts, Ah! The horse neighs and then begins to make its way down a narrow dirt road that leads off from the main street into a sort of not exactly dense area of bushland, but an area that is shielded from civilization as you feel the carriage rattle beneath you the retainer looks at you, his eyes still glimmering, his facial features still hidden by the darkness and he seems to be contemplating you it's Marcus the nervous one after a few minutes of silence he finally speaks So, uh, you, you've been sent because, uh, because Mr. Whitlock uh, stopped replying to those letters, right? You could say that, yes. And you, you're just here to make sure business goes on as usual? Well, that would be the ideal resolution to all this, yes. You're not here to, to, to kill anyone? Anything like that? Because 
Mr. Whitlock said that there were vampires in the city and you know, there's, a thing, there's a thing called the, the Masquerade and we're gonna play it by ear. So, depends on how strenuous negotiations are. So, to the manor. We'll be there, we'll be there in a few minutes, calls the driver. And the other retainer leans forwards, rests a palm against his foreheads and forehead, and after a while he says, okay, negotiation, it's a... Uh, wouldn't happen to be looking for anyone other than Mr. Whitlock, would you? I mean, they're not my primary concern, but if you've got some information, it would mostly be appreciated. I could earn some points in your favour. I. Depending on how things shake down with Mr. Whitlock, of course. The glimmer in his eyes flickers for just a second, and then he says, I. He said he'd kill us if we... He said if any more turn up, just bring them to the manor and he'll deal with them like he did the other one. And... So... So where's he going to attack this? Or attack uh, Attack, he says. He, the, his eyes flicker once again and he looks looks over his shoulder out of the carriage at the dirt road slowly receding into the darkness behind you. Mm. He says, I, I, I say anything about attacks. I, I've said enough. If Just tell me where. How would you like to get this information out of it, if you're going to? I just slowly smile, and as my smile gets wider, he'll see each of my teeth, instead of being normal teeth with two enlarged canons as he's used to see islands that have row upon row with long, sharp, jagged now, ordinarily, I'd give you a penalty die for showing your teeth in the pitch darkness, but these ghouls are using Eyes of the Beast. Yeah. And they can perfectly see you right now, so go ahead and make me a Charisma Intimidation check. Uh, Veil Threat? Yeah, Veil Threat. Go ahead. Don't say a damn thing, says the driver. Four successes. Four successes. Don't say a damn thing, repeats the driver. If... If... If he... Doesn't... You know, then... Roth will have us... The one who's riding with you shoots a look at the driver. And I'm going to roll a composure plus resolve check for him. Dice pull of five. That's five successes. Would you like to willpower it? No, I can't willpower it. Can't willpower it. Okay. The one sitting in front of you shrugs and he says, I can't 
I can't say any more. Look, when we bring you into the manor, someone's going to try to get you, just like they did with the other one. And they're really strong, okay? If they get you, and they know that we've been talking to you, our lives are forfeit. So we're going to shut our mouths. Mm. Unless you can somehow promise us that that you'll come out on top, but I don't see how you can, not with... That's fine. You've given me more than enough. You tell me he goes on. He thinks for a moment, and he says, he's armed, but not... not in a way he would understand, not... Not with a gun, he's... Are you armed? They shake their heads. Oh. The journey continues on in silence for another few minutes. You feel the carriage being guided around a corner, up a relatively steep incline. And then suddenly the darkness outside is replaced with bright orange light. The carriage is being driven along a paved driveway part paved driveway lined with burning street lights. In the haze of the street lights the very edge of the darkness you can just make out the hints of an immaculate garden perfectly tended flowers bushes the dark black edges of a hedge maze and then finally the driver shouts whoa whoa pulls the reins and you climb out of the carriage followed by the retainers. Your boots crunch down onto the gravel and you're standing in front of a grand manor. A row of sandstone pillars line the front and above you the roof is decorated with wrought iron spikes gothic minarets and miniature towers you see beyond the pillars three stone stairs that lead up into a small alcove in the brick wall and then just beyond that there's thick double doors made of mahogany with a golden knocker in the shape of the letter W. The two retainers exchange glances and then they look at you. I smile and get out of the 
thing. Uh, I'm going to activate heightened senses hearing. Heightened senses hearing. Okay. And as you allow, as you gesture for the retainers to lead on, as they lead you across the gravel and past the pillars, begin to climb the steps towards the front door. Go ahead and make a wits awareness check for me. Add your ore specs to it. And do I get one dice for the power bonus as well? Uh, yes. So we've got one potency. So yeah, an extra dice. Uh, so that is one critical success and two successes. So six successes total. Six successes total. Okay. So they rolled three successes. And as you move towards the front door, as one of the ghouls reaches forwards to grab the knocker, you hear the sound of shuffling movement from the other side of the door, and you hear, just on the periphery of your perception, a muffled voice whispering, In position, side of the door, you there, you there, stakes in the rain. Do as I say. I give the signal. As soon as it opens, be ready. I... Um... So with the design of the door, is yep. it like double doors? So it's double doors, yep. And there's a knocker on the left, yep. and the right door is bare. Yep. So there's nothing I could... Like, I couldn't bar the door by sticking something in the handles. Um... You might be able to, from the outside, um, you could probably, like, best thing to do would probably be to wedge something right under the handle, right under the handles of both doors, mm. but you're not sure whether they open inwards or outwards is the thing. I gesture for them to go forward and open the door first. And I unhook my axe and have it in my hand under my jacket. Both... Both of the retainers knock. The one in front of you clasps his fingers around the knocker, pulls it back and knocks once, twice, three times. There's silence for a couple of seconds and then a voice from the other side of the door, calls out, Enter! I nod for them to continue. They look over their shoulders nervously at you. The retainer who knocked reaches over, wraps his hands around the doorknob and twists it, and then he begins to push the door open, it creaks and light floods out, revealing a brightly lit tiled entrance hall on the other side. Standing on the other side of the door is a rather, a rather ill, a rather conspicuous looking man. He's dressed in 
tailored slacks and a dinner jacket like the two retainers, but they look as if they are slightly too tight on him. His shoulders are perhaps just a bit broader than the jacket is built for. His hair is wild, his eyes bloodshot, and his facial hair is a mass of congealed beard. He smiles as the door opens and he says, Ah, guest of Mr. Whitlock, please come in, come in. The two retainers look over their shoulder at you, both of them still standing just outside the door like you. Marcus holds out his arm. I walk, After you. I walk up into the door and then I wish I push them them two through first. Yeah, okay. Go ahead and make a strength brawl check for me, please. Yep, yeah, I'm gonna do it suddenly. Suddenly, yep, yeah, so just gonna just rush forwards, push them both in the back. I'm just gonna wa- make up like I'm gonna walk past them and then yeah, instead of and walking past them. Arm I just, out and woof, yeah, I just, just just each one of them. Shuffle like, them through the door. Yeah. Um, without much warning, so hopefully whoever's reacting behind the door might get spooked and act early. So it's strength brawl. Yep, strength brawl. Uh, any bonuses from surprise? Um, yeah, sure. Add a bonus dice. That is four successes. Four successes. You step forwards, and as you as your shoulders are parallel with the two retainers, you suddenly shove out both hands, smacking your palms into the small of their backs. Ah! They call out as they stumble forwards, and as they stumble forwards in front of you, you kick out, kicking one, and then the second one through the door. As soon as Marcus tumbles through the door, someone on the other side leaps forwards, grabs him by the shoulder and slams a stake into his chest. And then you hear someone on the other side of the door shout, but shit, Marcus, shit. And then, and then you kick John through the door. He stumbles forwards into Marcus, who's still got the stake in his chest. And the three people on the other side of the door tumble to the ground. I... The ill-looking, the, the, the conspicuous-looking, ill-suited man still stands there in the entrance hall, simply watching. I... Walk up to the door with my axe in hand, stepping over the mass of people. Yeah, stepping over the mass of people. Yeah. As you step through the door and begin to step over the mass of people... I, I do expect the one from yeah, the left I know, as well. I know, yeah, I know, I know. There's one on the left. And as you step forwards, you see him You see him in the corner of your eye and as he lunges forwards, he stumbles over the mass of people that are just lying on the ground in the doorway, and this gives you a split second to react. Oh, I just buried the axe in his head. 
Yeah, bury the axe in his head. Okay, go ahead, make a strength melee check, and I'll oppose it with his. That's at least two, four, six, seven successes. Seven successes. Okay, he rolled three. So he stumbles dam- forward. I think his yeah. damage bonus. Yeah, your damage bonus from the axe is, is plus two. Cool. Yeah. So that is six points of damage. Hmm. So, and he's a ghoul. He's yeah. he's not a vampire. Yeah. So. You see him lunge forwards and he stumbles over the arm of Marcus who lies bleeding on the ground with the stake in his chest and this moment of stumbling gives you a split second to react and in the time it takes for him to steady himself, raise the wooden stake in his right hand and begin to rush towards you, you've already whirled around and you're bringing the axe straight down on his head, crack! You split his skull in two and he just topples forwards onto the onto the pile of people in front of you. Ah, fuck, get off me! Get not you get off! shouts someone at your feet. I grab the axe and just like rip it out of his skull and then just you wrench it out. <laughs> leaving a splotch of blood over the polished tiles. Seems almost a shame. I take a second and I'm like, so, now the entertainment's sorted. The man in the elfinic suit crosses his arms. He looks at the pile of ghouls at your feet. He opens his mouth and lets out an animalistic snarl. <sighs> and he says, so, you're here to kill me, sent by the prince? But you've got it. I won't let you take me alive! No, no. I'm not here to kill anyone. Well, anyone I already have, and I look at the mess of blood and, yeah. and men like going, ah, get off my axe! Struggling at your yeah. feet. The man in front of you clenches both fists and he takes a step forwards. What's it going to be? Negotiation. Parlay. He seems... You see the look on his face is a mixture of... anger. But also unease. He's... giving you the vibe that he's... he was prepared and ready to fight whoever got through that door wasn't expecting you to say you want to negotiate. So go ahead and make for me a manipulation persuasion, a composure plus persuasion check, please. You've got to compose yourself. You've got to to stay composed as he's right in front of you. Um, I might raise blood for this. Yeah, it's probably good. Uh, I go up to two hunger. Two hunger. Finally. <laughs> but I do get an extra two dice. And I'm only one blood one blood dice for this roll, yes? Um, it's two blood it's two blood from the next one onwards from what I recall. Yeah. Uh 
Well, that's good. That's three successes. Three successes. Okay. I'm going to roll his resolve plus... I'm going to roll his resolve plus his insight. He doesn't have insight, so he's just going to roll resolve. So, as you step towards him, you call upon the blood, cause it to flow through your veins, to steady your muscles, to add colour to your cheeks and appear slightly less threatening. And he doesn't buy any of it. He takes a step back, doesn't immediately go to attack. But he raises his clenched fists and he says, Oh yeah? Negotiate. Negotiate. That's not what the other one wanted. The other one killed me soon as she... The other one wanted to kill me soon as she saw me. Didn't even... Didn't even try to talk. I just barely took her down myself. I was not going to take chances the yeah. second time. Who was she affiliated with? She was one that was affiliated. So you were told that... You were told by cousins... Yep. That... The sire of Mr. Whitlock, Elizabeth Worthington, went to go see what happened to her sire, and she did not return. She's the, the one who Childer. Helped. The Childer, yeah. She did not. She's the one who brokered the deal between cousins and her sire, but she did not return. Yeah. So was that cousins? Cousins? He says, raising an eyebrow. Who the... Who the... Who in the bleeding hell is cousins? The troll dog? He smiles. Ah, you don't know what the hell you've walked into, do you? <laughs> They're just gonna keep sending you guys. They're just gonna keep sending you fools one by one by one. I will take you down each time. Meow, meow. Maybe no need for that. All I'm here to do is to make sure the mail keeps flowing. For some reason, you're not responding to letters. Letters, he says. So letters aren't getting to you. turns a puzzling look and he says no no letters are getting here but nothing from cousins right he says guy in the city about the trains yes yeah no see that was the master's deal that was his arrangement I have no interest in working with any of you bloodsuckers in the city? He says, raising both hands. I already brought my temple. Okay, so you're not Whitlock's here. He smiles. <laughs> Whitlock is... Whitlock is staked in the cellar with the other one. So you're not Whitlock. <laughs> no. He steps takes a step forwards and doesn't almost bow on the red carpet. He says, he says, Maxwell Roth at your service. <laughs> <laughs>
formerly Maxwell Roth, head of staff and personal butler, to Mr. Albert Whitlock. And so you've taken over the estate. He looks around, he says, State can't function while the master's in torpor, can it? So you're more or less master of this domain now? He nods. Now, now you're catching on. And you don't wish to deal with cousins? I want nothing to do with any of you bloodsuckers. I wish to have Churnside as my domain and will not suffer any outside interference. I'm not like the master. That was his mistake. Dealing with thing, things, creatures like you. How do you think? How do you think he got here in the first place? He spent decades, decades labouring under those Ventru in London. And what do they reward him with? They send him down here to a prison colony at the arse end of the world. And he still, still tries to bend over backwards at the beck and call of bloodsuckers in the city. Now, he says, So, who do you wish to align yourself with? This, Roth smiles behind you, the minister struggling. Oh, get a fuck! You just keep me fuck roll that way. This he chuckles and he says, "As you can see, my men are more than a handful for more than a handful enough for me. I do not desire any more allies. So now, I give you a choice: turn and go back the way you came, return to Melbourne, and tell this cousins there will be no deal, or I will have you in the cellar." with the master and his bitch. Well. Seems an often negotiating sort. You may turn and leave, he says, holding out his hands towards the door. You see, I take a step towards it. Here's the problem. When I take a job, I get it done. Now. You may fight me, you may win. However, the city won't leave you alone. More will come, and one day, you'll be unlucky. Become annoyance enough, they might actually take enough notice to send someone worth sending, so to speak. And you won't be able to defeat them all. There are some that have been walking this earth before before your families crawled from whatever peasant hovels they were tilling I smile it's just a matter of time 
Make a charisma intimidation check. Veiled threats specialty, please. Two successes. Two successes. I'm going to roll for his resolve plus insight. Gives him a dice pool of five. Let's see how he goes. Just double check he doesn't have any insight. In fact, I'm going to have him counter with a persuasion and have him counter with a charisma persuasion of his own. Give him a dice pool of six. That is three successes matching yours. He snarls. <laughs> they already sent one. They've sent two. And if I could take you down, I could take any of them there down. Do you really think a train platform in the arse end of nowhere means anything to anyone in that city? Beyond this cousin's... Master said they have a sheriff. Why is the sheriff not here dealing with this? <laughs> because it hasn't got out of hand yet. However, three disappeared kindred is starting to be a problem that the prince cannot overlook. And it's not about the plane platform, plane, that train platform. It's about a kindred that doesn't know his place in the pecking order. That holds domain but doesn't defer. That is the real threat to his power. And all threats will be stepped on. <laughs> He scoffs. Enough. Enough. I gave you... I gave you a chance to negotiate, to make an offer, and then to turn to leave. And you chose to do none of those things. Now, you will join the others and remain there until such a time as I decide what to do with you. Then he's going to rouse the blood. He gets hungrier, so he's now at hunger four. And he activates his feral weapons. He clenches his fists tightly, and you watch as bones begin to snap out of his knuckles, breaking his skin, and he grows wolverine like claws not made of metal, they look more biological, more animalistic. He clenches his fists and now bears twisted cat claws. Yeah. Um, I'm gonna activate Defy Bane. Defy Bane, yeah. I don't get hungrier. Don't get hungrier. And then I Will uh, where's my cheeky pigs? So you activate toughness, not the fire bane. No, I'm activating the fire bane. Okay. Just to let you know, feral weapons don't deal lag damage. Oh, okay. Well, they yeah. don't need to. Yes, yeah, so you have to. It's still, it's still a rouse check for toughness. So yeah. Yeah, no, I'll activate the toughness. Um, and 
I will hold my axe to the ready. Hold your axe to the ready. So, he gnashes his teeth, baring his face, snarls. His long, dishevelled black hair seems to seems to curl inwards like the crest on a reptile. And then he charges towards you, slashing the claws wildly in the air. I'm going to make it look like I'm going for an axe strike instead of going to activate my monstrous bite. Monstrous bite. And mm. try and take a... Try to take a bite out of him? Yeah. Alright. Uh, let me look up monst- Let's look up monstrous bite. Let's see... I believe mine does do ag damage. I think it does. But you have to grab hold of it. Uh, I think I can just attack with it. Yeah, I'm just double checking. Um, we'll shoot to the back here. Yeah, we'll shoot to the back. Two, yeah, two nineteen. Two twenty-four. So, monstrous bite. When, when ready to attack or feed, your teeth extend to lengthy splay vicious daggers. Attacking with your bite, suffer no cold shot penalty. You gain one extra success at all. Okay, yeah. So you just got to grapple him. You got to grapple him, and then after you've grappled him, you get a you can bite him with the next round. Because that's how biting works. You grapple, and then you bite. Okay, cool. I'll do that then. Alright. So, as you see him rush towards you, you raise your axe in the air, raising it with both hands, making it look as if you're about to strike him down. You open your mouth, bearing your own fangs at him, and you hiss, <laughs> and you're teeth begin to grow, begin to lengthen into splayed, vicious daggers as your jaw juts out and you prepare to use your monstrous bite. Go ahead and roll me a strength brawl check, please. Um, I will raise blood for this, for blood search. Yes. Um, I do not get hungrier. Do not get hungrier, so, yep. Two extra, uh, two extra dice and an extra, and two hunger dice. Alright, so is eight successes. Eight successes? That's eight successes to his six successes. So he rushes forward, slashes his claws in your direction. You raise your axe and as he as he swerves away to dodge it, you pull your axe back and then with your left hand punch him in the gut. And as he reels backwards from the punch, you rush forwards, wrapping your left arm around his neck and pulling him close to you with a hug. You sling your axe back over your shoulder and then wrap your right arm around him, trapping him as he struggles to escape. So you've got him grappled. And now that you have him grappled, 
move to the next round, and you're going to try to bite him now. Yeah. So no damage was done. You're just going to try to bite him. Okay. Yeah. So again, make a make a strength brawl, and I'll oppose it to his. Uh, that's, what is it? that's double, that's double, so that's seven successes. Seven successes. Your teeth lengthen, daggers shooting out of your mouth, and you're about to dig your mouth into his neck. When his beast surges, he rolled eight, messy crit. Yep. So, you feel him lurch just as the tip of your fangs pierce his skin. Blood begins to gush out of the hole towards you and your beast leaps with jubilation at the sight of his blood. You manage to deal the base amount of damage, which is plus three, I believe. Yeah. So plus three aggravated damage to him. But it's at this point that he kicks you in the gut and you feel your teeth wrenched out of his neck as he juts back, slashing his claws into your face for good measure, dealing three points of superficial damage to you, which is reduced to one thanks to your toughness. Yeah. So I take one point of damage. One point of superficial damage. And he's down three ag. Your beast roars at you in disappointment. You tasted first drops of his sweet, sweet vitae, and it is it is nicer, sweeter than any mortal flesh, and your beast is uh, rattling hit, the bars in its cage. I'll hit him with the axe. More. I'll hit him with the axe this time. Yep. So that's and the strength increase lasts for the scene. It did, yeah. Yes. Still active. Yeah. Alright, um, I'll burn the third willpower for that. Oh, yep. second willpower, actually. Second willpower. Uh, Alright, that is six successes. Six successes. Okay, that's six successes to his four successes. So he's going to make a rouse check. He does not get hungrier. He activates his own toughness as you unsling the axe, rush towards him as he steadies himself from the last blow he gave and slam the axe into his rib. You hear the sound of a bone cracking and he stumbles backwards. Four points of damage total. Four points of damage, but he quickly rights himself and takes two points of superficial damage from his toughness. He is, however, impaired now. Alright, um, I'll try to initiate a grapple again. Yep, grapple again. So two less dice. He's now impaired, he's down three ag, and two more ag to take him out. Uh, so that's... Alright. So, I've got a crit on my normal dice. Yep. But I've got a crit on my blood dice as well. That's does, a messy crit. Does that's a messy crit, that's even though I don't need to use it as part of the crit? Yeah, those are messy. That's a messy crit. Cool. As long as at least one blood dice has a crit. In the, well, has anyway, a, that's two, four, six. Wait, no, two, four. Wait, no. 
Yeah. Two, four, five, six, seven, eight. So, are you trying to bite him again? Or yeah, bite yeah. him. All right. Well, so grapple, yeah, grapple, grapple and bite. All right. Yeah. Well, because you've got the messy crit, I'm going to let you bite and grapple. Yeah. So, he recoils from the blow with the axe, his feet clattering on the blood-soaked tiles, and then he snarls once again. Ugh. And then, like an animal, he gets down on all fours and leaps towards you, the claws trained on your face, and your beast roars. You reach for your axe, but your beast rattles the bars of the cage. No! No! I need more! I need more! And as he flies towards you, you lunge forward, sinking your dagger-like fangs into his neck, pulling him out of thin air and pinning him under your body to the red carpet that lines the entrance hall. His blood begins to spurt out, mixing into the red carpet, the blood stain growing, the blood pool of blood growing bigger and bigger until it begins to run off the side of the carpet and down the cracks between the tiles. You've grappled him and you begin to drink. Reset your hunger to one, do you keep going? Um. You deal, well, first of all, you deal three, at least three points of aggravated damage. So as you drink from him and feel that sweet kindred blood flowing down your throat, his skin begins to turn grey, almost stony as he enters torpor from the damage and offers well, no resistance I've to got you. a messy crit, so I'm just going to yeah. be ripping and tearing at his throat, drinking just everything. Ripping it, <sighs> tearing apart the stony flesh, ripping out what's left of his internal organs and bathing yourself in his blood. You've drained him of every drop he has. Reset your hunger to zero. And as you feel that last drop slide down your throat, for a brief moment, your beast is satisfied. It purrs. Oh, hunger is satisfied. But then, then, something even sweeter begins to emerge from his torpid body, and your beast is once again roaring, demanding that you keep going more more I'll give it what it wants give it what it wants okay let's go to this part of the book states of damnation okay I would like you to please go ahead and make a strength resolve test you have to pass a number of these tests equal to his blood potency only as one alright uh, I have Three successes. Three successes. That's all you need. It's difficulty three. Mm. You keep going, letting the beast's roars fill your senses and you lose a sense of place. You no longer know where you are. All you know is that there is something within this man, something that your beast wants. And if his blood was like cocaine... What you're, what you're gorging yourself on now is like crystal meth. It's in a whole nother league. 
It's the single sweetest, most intense ecstasy you've ever, ever experienced. And as you drink and drink and drink, you feel something, something, a shred of his essence within him fighting against you, trying to stop you from consuming his very soul. But you're way too powerful. You've walked the earth far longer. Your blood far more potent than his. All around you, the entrance hall has been swallowed up in an endless expanse of white mist. The shouts from the retainers in the background screaming at either you or him. Get him! Get him! No! He's coming! Don't Get out of the way! Has faded into silence. The only things you can hear are the roars of your beast, the pained screams of this kindred as you drain the last of his essence and the toll of a bell somewhere, somewhere beyond comprehension. Okay. You lose one point of humanity. Mm-hmm. Do I keep the stain, or does that go? The stain stays, but you lose one point of humanity. Now, I would like you to roll your remaining humanity plus your blood potency. And it will be compared to his resolve plus his blood potency. Uh, Are there blood dice? There's no blood dice in this. So, humanity plus... Humanity blood plus blood potency. Alright, that is... Six successes. Six successes. He got three successes. For each success, you gain five experience points. However, he is of the 12th generation, mm. and his blood potency is only one. So you don't get a generation bump, you yeah. don't get a blood potency bump, but you get 15 experience from draining him. Blink, shake your head. The beast is silent. Look around the room. The entrance hall has returned. The carpet is a deeper shade of red with all the spilled blood. The tiles are covered in mud, blood, shards of bone. Behind you, all of the retainers stand in a line, silently watching, too terrified to move. And in your arms, you clutch a man, a corpse. It's the skin peeling off its skull and bones. It looks as if it's looks as if it's been dead at least thirty or forty years. The skin rapidly decaying, melting away until only the bones beneath are left. Um. Well. I can't let the fools leave the fortress. They just witnessed. You stand up, turn around, face the wolves. Perhaps knowing what's coming, the one, the single one that is armed, reaches for the stake that is pulled out of his friend's chest, still stained with his blood, and begins to raise it. The other three simply stands there 
clutching their fists, ready to fight. They may only be ghouls, they may be unarmed, but they're gangrel, and they're ready to fight. What do you do? I rush at them. You rush at them. You gonna take any one in particular, or are you gonna take, I'm gonna all, take the, I'm gonna, all four at the same time? I'm gonna take the armed one first, and You're I'm just gonna like, um, I'm 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 getting an axe murder him. So, two for the blood search. Uh, that is four successes four successes so you're running at the one with the stake yeah the other the other three just scream ah and scatter their fists still raise they 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 turn and run in in three different directions as you charge towards this man raising your axe in both hands above your head and as he backs away and presses up against the plaster wall he raises the stake in futility as you bring the axe down and he's going to roll how many successes did you get? four, four, yep so he's going to roll That is one success for him, so, so three plus two, so five. Yeah. Five, yeah, five points. You bring the axe down, <laughs> wedging it into the front of his chest. He lets out a death rattle <sighs> as his fingers open and he drops the stake. And then you pull the axe out of his chest and he drops to the ground. You whirl around. Two of the ghouls uh, have run to the very edge of the entrance hall. They're running towards a door that leads deeper into the house, while the remaining one is reaching up, grabbing one of the lanterns from a sconce on the wall, and oh. just as you begin to run towards I'm him, gonna, I'm gonna, I'm him, I'm gonna throw the axe at him. Throw the axe at him? Lodge it to his skull. Yep, just gonna throw it, all right. Let's go and do a... We'll do a strength athletics to hurl the axe at him. Um, cool, so we'll choose dice. No weapons dice. God, Pierce is hard to kill. <laughs> uh, five successes. Five successes. Okay, roll for him. Okay, he got four successes. So he detaches the lantern from the sconce and he raises it just as you fling the axe. It sails through the air towards him and hits him straight in the face. He gurgles as he falls backwards. The lantern falls out of his hand and hits the ground. It shatters and flames begin to spread across the blood-stained tiles. I'd like you to go ahead and make a rot shrek for me, which is a third of your humanity plus your willpower. Remaining willpower. Uh, two and two. I just need one success. Um Well it's it's not a big fire, so two successes. Uh I've got your four. 
four. Okay. You feel your beast let out the most feeble protest as it sees the flames begin to sneak along the tiles and reach the edge of the carpet. But you're still riding the high of the diablerie you just performed and the beast is shut down immediately in your rage as you turn your attention oh, to the last two tre- ghouls. I'll treat my axe from the... Yeah. From the corpse. Step forwards, wrench your axe out of the corpse, and then whirl around facing the other two ghouls. Master! Master, help us! Screams one of them as he barrels through the door, and the other takes one last look at you and then runs after his friend. I'm gonna run. Meanwhile, the flames have reached the red carpet, and while they haven't yet filled the whole room, they are beginning to. They are beginning to eat the edge of the carpet grow bigger and bigger and lick at the air only metres away from you. So he said that they're in the basement, right? He said they're in the basement and they've run off to some... They've run off into some door on the other side of the hall. Well, probably they're running towards their master, so I'll follow them. Follow them, yep. Turn and look. You could... The easiest thing would be, would be to just run straight after them, but you would have to brave the flames. Otherwise, you can tr- you can find a way around the flames, but you'd give them a couple of precious seconds to get ahead. Um, I'll go through the flame and activate... Yes, when you activate your Defy Bane. Defy Bane. Uh, I do get hungry, my through hunger. Oh, yeah. well, one hunger. Yeah, one hunger, yes. Alright, go ahead and make for me a Resolve plus Athletic, or a Wits plus Athletics check. We'll go Wits. Uh, wits. Plus athletics. Uh, that is two successes. Two successes. Okay. You see the ghoul disappear into the door. He shuts it behind him, but not fully. It hits the door frame and then bounces away. Open again, half open, half closed, swinging with the impact. You feel the heat from the flames next to you, and then you grit your teeth and leap forward straight over the flames. You misjudged your trajectory only slightly, and as you come to a stop and land on the tiles beyond, you feel the flames singeing your back, burning through your coat and melting the skin off your spine. And you take... Well, it's complicated. See, I was going to require five successes to get through. So I was going to deal three points of aggravated damage. However, I ignore three. Yeah, however, you ignore three. So those three become superficial damage, and then those superficial damage get reduced. So you take one point of superficial damage. You quickly turn around, see the embers on the back of your trench coat, and smack them with the palm of your hand, brushing the ash off and then continuing at a run towards the ghouls. You burst through the door into a kitchen, a dining room on the right, and on the left, a white wooden door, presumably leading to the cellar. You're just in time to catch one of the ghouls as he slams the cellar door shut behind him. Master! Master! I wrench open the cellar door and I run in after them. 
wrench open the cellar door, sprint down the stairs after them. At the bottom of the stairwell is another wooden door. You don't even bother to grab the doorknob. You just square your shoulders and smash through it. Ah! Shout the two ghouls as they whirl around. They raise their hands in surrender. They're not the only ones in here. The cellar is, for the most part, an ordinary cellar. The walls are lined with wine racks filled with all sorts of vintage. There's barrels of rum on the left, and some wooden crates filled with various non-perishable food stuff scattered around the space. But in the very centre of the room, two wooden tables have been laid out. On the one on the left, there's a woman wearing a grey skirt and cardigan. There's a stake wedged in her chest. Her flesh is grey, stony cold. And on the right, a man who must surely be the lord of the manor. His face still grand, giving off an air of regality, even as he slumbers in torpor, staked. The ghouls turn around, they rush towards their master, and one of them wraps his arms around his master's leg and begins to shake um, the body, trying to awaken um, him, while the um, other one wraps um, his um, hand um, around the stake and starts to pull. Um, the one that's doing the right thing, I'm gonna bury I'm gonna bury the axe in the back of his head first. Yep. So you're gonna throw it or just rush him? Just just I'll throw it. Alright, go ahead, strength athletics for me. Athletics. Oh, and then two for the for the um, blood surge. Blood surge. That is. Uh, five successes. So that's three successes for uh, him. Okay, yep. Three successes for so him. Yep. Five so points of five points of damage. You take a step forwards, raise the axe and hurl it across the room, and just as you begin to see the stake begin to budge, wham! The blade of the axe hits the ghoul in the back of his head. <laughs> his fingers slide off the rising stake and he slumps forwards over his torpid master. The other ghoul lets go of his master's leg. He turns around, gets down to his knees, backs away, pressing his back against the side of the table. He raises both hands. I... I, I won't see a thing. Please. I devour him. Your teeth still elongated like daggers begin to feast. You spend the next hour carefully tearing his body piece from piece with your bare teeth and hands gorging yourself giving in to the beast. Add another stain please. Sure. <laughs> well actually I'd argue that actually, this comes under the... He yes. was surrendering. Um, but I couldn't yeah, yeah. Uh, if right. if I let him live, I don't. I don't yeah. survive. <laughs> yeah. An hour passes. Finally, the haze of bloodlust that has consumed you fades away. Reduce your hunger to zero. 
you look up from the grisly mess of remains, pieces of undifferentiated flesh, shards of bone, and still wet blood at your knees on the cold cellar floor. You are alone with the Lord of the Manor and his child are both of them torpid. I will... As you stand, breathing deep, letting the rush fade away, calm down in the silence of the cellar and you examine two vampires before you. The woman is none the worse for wear. The look on her face, the frozen O of shock suggests she was taken by surprise. But her master is in disastrous shape. His torpid grey flesh is pockmarked with scratches and what appear to be bite marks. In his lower torso, there's a chunk of him that's just completely missing, having been torn out, the ribs visible underneath. His tail coat and jacket are in tatters. I'll pull the stake from him first. Pull the stake from him. Take a breath. And you wrap your arms around the stake and lift it out. <gasps> he sits upright as colour returns to his skin. His skin that remains deathly pale, still white grey. Even now that he's awake, the first thing he does is lock his eyes onto you. And you see, you recognise that look in his eyes. He's extremely hungry. I will. I'll rouse the blood to um, drop some vitae into. Is there like any like a cup or a bowl or anything nearby? Yeah, you can look around. That there's like cups and bowls. It's a cellar, so there'd be at least a glass. Yeah, I there. grab it and I just will some vitae into the bot, the yep. cup, and hand it to him. Let's go ahead. Rouse, rouse the, the blood. blood. Uh, I do not get hungry. Do not get hungrier. So he sits there just sitting up on the table, <sighs> looking at you, baring his teeth, breathing deeply, letting out these bestial growls. <sighs> at, his, at his hands, his fingers begin to warp and break before your eyes, shifting into rudimentary talons and then back again as he desperately tries to stave off the hunger frenzy. You grab a wine glass from the rack beside you. Bite your own wrist and drop blood in. And as you hold it out, he leaps off the table, snatches the glass with both hands, downs it in a second. It's enough to stave off the hunger frenzy. He breathes in and out. More colour returning to his dead face. He's still incredibly hungry. His eyes still incredibly bloodshot. 
you've given him enough to stave it off, at least for now. He looks from left to right, sees the woman staked next to him, sees what's left of his staff at your feet. And then he bares his fangs, looks at you and he says, explain. You butler turned traitor. These people joined you. Roth. And I slaughtered my way through them. Roth. Roth. He growls the name again, letting it linger on his lips. He's dead now. I faced betrayals. From Mithras, from Lord Camden, from the Court of London was sent here to the rectum of the earth and it was a mortal that got the best of me. I thank you, he says, hoisting himself back up on the table. He looks down, inspects the wounds on his body, the claw marks, the bites, the However your manner is on fire. He snarls. <sighs> Time to waste then. Turns, looks to the woman at his left. And then he smiles. Do you know the way out? Um. Well, not beyond the way I went in. There's a back door for the staff. If we hurry, we can make it. He says. I put the girl over my shoulder and let's go. Alright, I'd like you to go ahead and make for me a strength athletics check to hoist, to make it out while hoisting this torpid form over your shoulder. No, I've got no hunger I believe. No hunger, yep. You've reset it to zero. You know what? We've got blood, let's search. Uh, I'm... Still at zero. Still at zero, yeah. Two extra dice. Uh, that is... Five. Five successes. So... He helps you lift her off the table and you hoist her torpid, heavy, dead weight over your shoulder and then you turn lead this weakened gangrel to the stairs of the cellar and as you ascend you feel the air growing hotter and hotter and hotter and just as you step into the kitchen whoosh the flames surge forwards breaking through the door to the entrance hall beginning to consume the kitchen over there calls lord whitlock he points beyond the dining room to an alcove off to the side and you run forwards following him straining under this dead weight the flames begin to spread gathering around you getting closer and closer licking the air inches away from your body and your beast begins to stir it begins to whimper run get out of here run run you hear the sound of a door being smashed open and you see Lord Whitlock in the alcove ahead, bursting through the staff door into the night outside. 
whoosh, the flames surge through the kitchen into the dining room, only centimetres behind you. Come on, come on. You rouse the blood, pumping it, mustering all the strength you can manage. You climb up onto the dining table, still weighed down by the torpid chowder, and sprint across the warping, melting wood as the flames chase you and as they're just about to reach you, you tense your knees and leap forwards, tumbling through the open staff door, just as you hear the dining table collapse behind you. The humid air is welcoming, humid, muggy, but still compared to the inferno behind you. It's the sweet coolness of salvation. You hit the ground and the woman slides off your shoulder, landing in the dirt. You roll onto your back. <sighs> As Lord Whitlock stands over you, watching his manner disappear in the flame watching the ornate carvings warp, twist, and crumble away. As the house collapses, as it begins to disappear, as the flames consume it, you pull yourself up to your feet. Lord Whitlock, turns to you, looks over his shoulder at you, his severe features reflected in the flickering flames, strange look on his face, something you've never seen in a vampire before, regret. I didn't have to, didn't have to turn out this way, he says. I should have given him the embrace decades ago, as he asked for. But she, he turns to the torpid woman, she wouldn't let me. He clenches his fist, steps over her and raises one in the air. He looks as if he's about to cave in her face. Put a hand on his shoulder. And go. It's not he that betrayed you, it's not she that betrayed you in the end. He says, as much as Roth was a brilliant servant, there was something in me that knew the embrace would be wasted upon him. I kept telling him to wait longer, just a little longer, but hangs his head. The regal face, suddenly solemn, sad. He must have known. It happened three months ago. A pack of young lupines. They encroached upon Churnside, took some of the people, and the lord of the town did my duty 
I hunted the dogs, destroyed them like the whelps they are. But when I returned to my haven, I was weak, unprepared. Unprepared for Roth's betrayal. He staked me, stole my blood, stole immortality. As he should. He looks towards his childer and her. I suppose she must have been sent to find me after I stopped responding to cousin's letters. Yes. I had this one on me. The night when I went to hunt the lupines, I meant to send it to him when I returned. He reaches into his tattered tailcoat and pulls out an envelope. As he hands it to you, do you open it or do you simply put it away? You simply put it away. Can't read. Yeah, you can't read. <laughs> it simply says that our arrangement must end. I grow weary of this place. I yearn for what I once had in London. Prince Lytton and his court in Melbourne have rejected me. And so I decided, decided decades ago, that when I was tired of this place, I would leave, leave for G-Town. The kindred there are young. They are anarchs. Camarilla has no influence. Many allies ready and waiting for me. After I go, well, I promised him no more than I would see that the letters continue returning, so it's good enough for me. You have done me a great boo, whether you intended to or not, he says. In front of you, there's a crashing sound as the roof of the manor begins to collapse and the entire building dramatically folds in on itself. The fire <laughs> explodes. Battering you with intense heat, and pinpricks of light crest a hill in the distance. The townspeople will have seen the flames. Let them believe I perished, he says, as he kneels over, grabs his childer off the ground and hoists her over his shoulder. I will not forget what you have done for me. May I know your name? Alexander Pierce, I extend a hand. He holds out his free hand. What's left of it? He's missing a finger from lupine attacks. He shakes it. Alfred Whitlock. Eleventh generation gangrel at your service. If you ever find yourself in G-Town, know that I owe you a major boon. And then, seeing the lights in the distance grow closer 
he turns and trudges away trudges away into the copse of trees just beyond the manor grounds and he's swallowed up in darkness cool do you oh, wait guess. for the people to arrive or do you no, make I'm yourself covered in blood. I'm gonna make yeah. myself scarce you, you might take one last look at your shoulder over the inferno the fireball that was once with Lock Manor and then you turn I put my axe back in its sheath slide your axe back into its sheath and then you disappear into the darkness when you return to Melbourne the next night you arrange a meeting with Matthew Cousins at Forge's bookstore soon as he can meet you and you meet with him second past eight o'clock once again in the back room as he and Sandor hunch over the ornate chess table checkmate Mr Sandor says cousins as he slides forwards a knight knocking over Sandor's king Sandor brushes his hands together. Oh, I'm no bloody good at this game. How am I supposed to compete with someone who's had a hundred bloody years to learn? Ah, 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 says Cousins. I've only walked this earth for fifty, thank you. And that's including the twenty-three I was alive. Sandor rolls his eyes turns towards you, nods his head as he steps out into the bookstore. Pierce, hope all went well. I smile and I pull the letter out of my pocket and hand it to... The cousins. Yeah. Sandor shuts the door behind him. And when they're gone, it's almost as if that mask of... That mask of the wise chess player slips from the Malkavian's face. He looks at you with a look of manic desperation, snatches the letter, opens it. He reads it. He's done within 15 seconds, and when he's done, he crushes the paper in his hand. So he's left. Yes, indeed he has. He's left. <laughs> Leaving nobody in charge of Churnside Station. None whatsoever. Well, I would hate for one of my enemies from G-Town, or my rivals, I should say, to realize this and fill the void. He smiles and he looks at you. Pierce. You're still finding your way in this city. You live in the mausoleum, in the cemetery of Great Collins Street, living on the kindness of Sebastian Wilde. I'm offering you a chance to rise above your station. He holds out a hand. Will you take over Alfred Whitlock's side of the business. What did his duties include? 
Oh, nothing, he says, crossing his arms, leaning back in his seat, picking up the chess pieces and starting to rearrange them anew. He was... Well, when I start the game, I take this pawn and move him two paces ahead. This allows the bishop to slide straight on out. He guides the piece across the board. In layman's terms, Whitlock, despite being an Ancilla, was nothing more than my pawn, me being the bishop. He was there simply so that others in G-Town could never take his, could never muscle in on my side of the business. Once a train leaves G-Town station, it's in his domain. And once it passes Churnside, it's in mine. An unbroken line of logistics. All you would need to do head down to Churnside every now and then, make sure any disturbances, any queries the railroad workers may have are dealt with. If you like, establish a haven for yourself there, but by all means, feel free to remain in the city. I merely need you to check in every now and then. Shall we even say, he thinks for a moment, you know what? Let us take joint ownership of the entire thing, he says. 50-50 split. Platform 1 at Spencer Street, your domain. Platform 2, mine. We'll each send a retainer to Cheltenham, to, we'll each send a retainer to Churnside. And the entire route from here to G-Town is under our control. I shake his head. Partners, he says. Partners. Bishop and Knight, together. Two pieces of a magnificent gambit. Oh, he says. This was in the envelope as well. Reaches into the screwed up piece of paper. Pulls out a piece of parchment. He holds it out. And you can't read very well, but you can tell that this is a list of names. Five or six of them to scrawl down on a blank piece of parchment. He mentioned about a month ago that some followers of Set in G-Town were looking to expand their influence over the railways to smuggle contraband more easily into Melbourne. It's harder to get it in via boat, you see. This is a list of the conspirators who are conspiring against him. Now that he's in G-Town, I'm sure he will uh, put them to pay, but if you'd like a little bit of extra influence with the court, the prince or the sheriff would find this most useful. Take it and fold it up slide it into your breast pocket. The prince would find this useful, but Wilde would also reward yeah, you. Oh. Hey, this is the brothel on the way back to my haven. Yeah. 
So you thank the Nalkavian for his time. Say, you're looking forward to doing business. And to you, partner, you step out into the night. Half an hour later, you're opening the door to Mr. Wilde's office. He smiles, looks up at you, radiating his handsome face across the room. Pierce, Pierce, you're back. Two nights you were gone, I began to worry, I must confess. Please take a seat. I do take a seat. Champagne, he says, raising the bottle, pouring himself a glass. I wave him off. As per usual, he takes a sip. So. I know word travels fast. So. I'll take it you've heard by recent one of good fortune. Yes. I did not tell you, but one of the terms working with cousins was that if something had happened to Lord Whitlock if he had met final death or indeed for some reason, whatever reason was unable to continue his arrangement I asked cousins that he would kindly consider you as his next business partner I presume the arrangement has been made you've shaken on it all as well now, I pull a piece of paper out of my pocket. On here is some information that the Setites would not want going to the Prince. His eyes wide and he raises an eyebrow with curiosity and he reaches a hand forwards to take it pulls his hand back. For a moment, his welcoming facade is replaced with one of irritation. You see the tip of his fang, the slightest snarl, but then he composes himself, takes another sip of champagne. And what, Mr. Pierce, would you propose I give you in exchange for this information? I'm going to need some repairs and renovations done to a certain property burnt to the ground in Churnside. And I know the Setites are all known for their Sense of style, let's say. You wish to... Leave the hospitality of my family's ancestral tomb? Oh no, quite from the opposite. Um... I don't see my business... Taking me to Chernside too often. So I'd like to continue to avail myself of. However, I would like a haven built, a haven established, and I think you'll find the information on this piece of paper 
more than cover the costs and inconveniences associated with it. Agreed, he says. He places his fingers on the piece of paper and I hand it to him. Carefully wedges it out from your fingers. He unfolds it, reads the names. Hmm. Allies of mine and sets. I was counting on their assistance to gain influence over the railroads, but with you in Lord Whitlock's place, I have no further use for them. Just the same. I thank you, and Set thanks you that you have protected his faithful. Folds the piece of paper shut again. Pulls open a drawer on his desk, slides it in. Rebuilding Whitlock Manor, then. You wish to reside there on a permanent basis, or simply have it accessible as a hideaway from time to time? I have it accessible. Base of operations. Base of operations, very well. I suppose it will be good for you to post some of some of your hoodlums there, have them patrol the grounds, Precisely. keep up appearances, let the people of Churnside know that you are the one in charge of things down there. Right. I accept. You're providing me with valuable information, and thanks to your actions I have obtained something of great value, and I will repay you in kind. You have domain, and I suppose that means you have risen beyond your need to avail yourself of my generosity. So, Pierce, I speak to you no longer as your employer, and I speak to you no longer as my employee. Henceforth, we are equals, friends. He holds out a hand. From a follower of Set to a flesh-eater, bloodlines shunned by polite society. We find commonality and soulless in the fact that they reject us. And it is by working together that we will eventually extend our dominion over all of them. What say you, Pierce? I smile and leave the room. <laughs> he just chuckles sinister to himself. <laughs> As you slide the door shut. That concludes the session. So, thus ends Pierce's neonate years. In the next session, we will jump ahead 30 years in the future to 1884. Pierce will have walked the earth for 50 years. Well, he'll have walked the earth for 50 years plus the time he was alive. He shall be an Ancilla in every respect. He now controls a profitable 
significant portion of the city's economy, has established himself as a force to be reckoned with, and has made several friends and allies that will continue to be useful in the decades to come. So, you gain 15 experience for the Diablerie, but you also gain an additional 15 experience for the time skip, giving you 30 experience overall. Additionally, you get two dots of resources. They activate as the investments that you convinced Mr. Dunstern, Bram Dunstern, to make in your name will have come to fruition three decades now, those will be available to you. And additionally, you may add a secondary haven. It's worth two dots when you choose to stay there. Yep. But more, or just, just write additional haven and put two dots because your 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 first haven is still worth one dot mm. um, and more importantly the Churnside Manor provides an excellent base of operations for the Bannon Push and for James Smokey Reed to establish themselves and so if you would like to order them to relocate from Melbourne and set themselves up within Churnside Manor, yeah. you may add them as three as a three-dot ally. Having a place such as Churnside Manor to raise their profile and consolidate their power will help them change from a band of young misfit cattle rustlers to a criminal force that people think twice before fucking around with. I will utilise them in the 30 years as basically my personal goon squad. The better working ones will get promoted up the ranks and become like my uh, your elite but not even elite just like the your elite. trigger men yeah your button men yeah my my, my inner circle of, of the, the, the people who get orders and then pass them on my officers and you keep James Smokey Reed as a ghoul um he entertains me so yes very well remains as a ghoul and thus the fog of time swirls around Alexander Pierce and carries him forwards into the future.